Let me ask you a question. Have you ever paused to consider why is the coastline changing? Where have the fish gone from my bay? Or why are there growing conflicts over lobster? These are some of the questions faced by coastal communities as they're experiencing environmental changes on their front steps. Welcome to Coastal Connections, Stories from the Atlantic. In this volume, we will continue to cover local perspectives on inspiring stories of innovation across Atlantic Canada, where we see communities becoming more resilient when times are rapidly changing. Coastal Connections is a production of Coastal Roots Radio, created by the Grenfell Campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland in partnership with the University of Guelph. Hello, I'm Dr. Sandra Eager. I'm an interdisciplinary marine scientist working as a postdoctoral fellow with the Coastal Roots Project and the Rural Resilience Group based at Grenfell Campus. My interests are in frolicking outside and bringing people together to govern and manage our coastal and marine systems more equitably and sustainably. I'm excited to be one of your co-hosts this volume. In the inaugural episode, I'm joined by the lovely Jackie Bauman. I love the ocean. Its beauty and abundance of wildlife make me passionate about conservation and tackling plastic waste. That's why I'm studying as a master's student in environmental policy at the Grenfell campus of Memorial University. Along the way, you can catch me seeking all the wild adventures across Newfoundland. Today we learn how the integration of local, indigenous, and western science can help us to better understand and respond to the changes that we're witnessing in coastal and marine systems. We'll hear from three fisheries experts that get to the heart of community-based efforts and local knowledge. Ultimately, we can't rely on any single organization, person, or entity to tackle these problems alone. First, we hear from two impressive women working in the Bay of Fundy who are helping to amplify the voices of communities and fish harvesters. Then we will hear from a local knowledge holder who is implementing two-eyed seeing in his research programs. Dr. Melanie Weiber is an anthropologist who has worked for 25 years investigating questions of how to better organize fisheries. I mean, fishermen and scientists have been working together for a long time, but probably not as effectively as they could. And that's largely because um, for a long time, fishermen were simply seen as a source of information for the people that they needed to collaborate with for wise management. And they weren't seen as knowledge constructors or co-constructors. They were just a sort of pot that you could dip into when you needed some information, right? The notion that fishermen know a lot and can be part of knowledge construction goes all the way back to the arguments about community-based management, that communities know best the opportunities and the barriers that they are confronted with, and that they should be partners in managing those opportunities and in dealing with those barriers rather than recipients of government management. And so co-management, community-based management, all of these ideas about involving fishermen more closely in the management of the stocks that they relied on depended significantly on the idea that fishermen were knowledge carriers, but didn't activate fishermen as knowledge co-constructors. Whether it's navigating research questions, planning management initiatives, or learning about a place, the people who are living day in and day out in coastal and marine systems have a critical role. 
Their capacities, historical and contextual knowledge are essential for contributing to community well-being and ultimately resilience. More recently, what you see is what I think is really exciting is when you see a biologist and a social scientist and a fisherman all on the boat together and they're puzzling through things like where is this shellfish disease coming from and why is it more prevalent and how often did you see it in the past and is it more common now than in so those are the kinds of things that I really enjoy in my work now because I see them as as a really positive sign that we can work together rather than simply kind of extract knowledge from each other and not acknowledge the importance of the contextualness of that knowledge. As she reflects on a project with Rumi Rochette, a marine scientist at UNB, we learn about the impacts that collaborative projects can have. Fishermen were also really impressed with the results of the lobster recruitment study. Being able to see on a map where those larvae went and how the tide and wind, etc., affected larval distribution really impressed them. And they were able to conceptualize how that was affecting their own stocks in their own fishing regions. So they supported um, continuing collaboration with those same group of marine biologists for the most part. But I should add, the really neat thing about it from a social science perspective was they said, going forward with Lobster Note Inc., we don't want to just do natural science, we want to do social science too. And for me, that was such a reward to see fishermen saying, because they've always agreed that biologists had something to tell them, and marine biologists in particular, but to see them saying, we really need social science as we go forward, that was very rewarding. This is a great example of when a simple question about risk snowballed resulting in a new organization looking at the impacts of climate change on lobster stocks. You can see more about Lobster Note Inc. in the show notes. One of the things that we're going to be doing in the future with that group is looking at the socioeconomic impact of climate change on lobster fishing communities, because we know that the waters are warming, particularly in the southern districts, so southwest Nova, southwest New Brunswick, those areas are going to be affected sooner. And they're already seeing, I think, some of the effects of water temperatures warming because lobsters are extremely sensitive to a very narrow range of water temperature, particularly for ovulation and release of eggs. So as lobster stocks move north, there's going to be kind of a devastating effect on those fishing communities in the southern range unless we can figure out proactively how to deal with that. Broadly... Melanie mentions the types of challenges they faced in these partnerships, including communication across knowledge types and building relationships. The answer seems to include both natural and social science expertise. One of the difficulties is communication between different kinds of expertise, whether you're talking about community knowledge, whether you're talking about scientific knowledge. Communication across those barriers can be difficult. And so we had to find kind of a common language. You know, if I have to think back over 25 years, how did I get so that people in fishing communities knew who I was and didn't feel threatened by me? You know, that, that was not an easy process. It, and it's not instant. It's not, there's no quick fix for trying to build those networks. As a postdoc who's constantly searching for a permanent full-time position, I am also noticing this shift in particular with job postings from government agencies calling for candidates within the social sciences to complement conventional natural and physical science approaches. 
I've recently found that I have to focus on soft skills that are valued on the ground, like communication, relationship building, growing trust, and having an open mind towards others who have different types of knowledge and experiences than I do. This trend of community organizations leading and taking part in research is very positive as it embodies the concepts that are being taught in progressive university departments. These usually contain students from all disciplines and knowledge silos. This is the essence of transdisciplinary research, working with communities rather than for communities or populations. Melanie has witnessed firsthand that it is possible for actor groups to work together and what co-constructing knowledge looks like on the ground. Let's dive deeper and hear from one of Melanie's long-term collaborators, the Fundy North Fishermen's Association, operating in the lower Bay of Fundy and throughout southwestern New Brunswick. My name is Lillian Mitchell. I'm the executive director of Fundy North Fishermen's Association, and we are a not-for-profit organization that represents small-scale commercial inshore harvesters. The fishery around here is made up of people who have individual licenses, and they own and operate their small business. So the association acts as a venue to bring all of those small business owners together and try and put forward positive action for things that we want to see done in our fisheries that can kind of benefit our coastal community. I asked Lillian how Fundy North Fishermen's Association came to be. We were kind of first established back in the 80s. Uh, because harvesters collectively identified that we wanted to see a change in our lobster fishing season. You know, we're kind of squeezed in between LFA 35 and LFA 38. And as far as the kind of conditions of our bottom and where we fit in the Bay of Fundy, our lobster season at the top end of our district would probably benefit from a more similar season to LFA 35. And at the lower portion of our district, we'd probably benefit with a more similar season to LFA 38. And we didn't have either at the time. We're just kind of this long district that is difficult to manage because we cover such a large geographic spread. And, and for that reason, harvesters kind of identified that a change in season would benefit us, and that brought everyone together. And it was actually, it was only in 2018, actually, that we finally received a change to our lobster fishing season. So it feels, uh, yeah, it feels really full circle now that we started with that objective and we have, we have met it, along with a many number of things uh, along the way. So our district now goes from St. Martin's all down the southwest coast of New Brunswick, including Deer Island and Campobello Island. So basically the southwest New Brunswick coast, excluding Graham and Ann. And that's really uh, where we stand today. So we represent members from every port on the New Brunswick side of the Bay of Fundy. Fundy North's Fishermen Association is a truly local grassroots organization right from the start. Over the years, they've been involved in a range of other activities and issues. For example, they've become a leader in ghost gear retrieval in the region, and these days, the association is promoting the use of catfish as bait. They've also been critical in building an evidence base for responding quickly and appropriately to oil spills in Canadian waters. We catch up with Lillian about an ongoing project to ground truth fishers' knowledge around St. John Harbour through the Ocean Protection Plan, also known as the OPP. The OPP is a nationwide initiative that started in 2016 and to date is the largest investment the Government of Canada has put into marine safety and protecting our coasts and waterways. 
we applied to study near shore surface currents because the Oceans Protection Plan was looking at collecting baseline information around industrial ports in Canada. Lillian points out why focusing on ports is so important. Oil spills are, are always going to be a concern where crude and refined products are being transported by vessel with like kind of like a pipe underwater. And our harvesters identified that as probably the area of greatest risk in terms of an oil spill. Harvesters have an incredible amount of knowledge about inshore surface currents. And we had, you know, through our work about oil spills over the year, it's obviously, um, it didn't just arrive as a concern once the, the government of Canada had, had designated the Oceans Protection Plan and putting extra thought into what that meant for our harbors. It's, it's always been something that's preoccupied us because obviously if there were to be an oil spill, that would have really detrimental impacts on all of our fisheries and depending on where that oil traveled, you know, it could be really detrimental if it went to a lobster nursery area or, you know, any number of things. As I start to wonder about what types of knowledge go into making an oil response plan, Lillian states what fishers are bringing to the table in this type of project. One thing that we knew is a lot of the models that predict where oil might go in the event of an oil spill are based on more offshore currents, like based on current meters that are way, way further out in the ocean than our little area of the Bay of Fundy. So one gap in knowledge we identified was we really don't know a lot about inshore surface currents, and we certainly haven't looked at how inshore surface currents might impact the track of oil spills. So this whole project is trying to to ground truth fishermen's knowledge about nearshore surface currents, because fishermen have a lot of knowledge just because they spend all their time on the water. They need to know really exactly what the tide and current conditions are to set and retrieve their gear. So they have a, they have a lot of knowledge that isn't otherwise captured. It's not written down necessarily anywhere. It's institutional knowledge that they are the caretakers of. Let's consider this term ground truthing. Why is it important? Why should we do it? Lillian helps us understand why validating scientific research findings at the local level is necessary for building knowledge from the ground up. She explains what this looks like for her project. In terms of like science, there's, uh, what is the term? It's called scientism or something ridiculous where it's like uh, science, pure science is the only way that we can make any decisions. All other knowledge is less valuable. So I think that with that being kind of the standard practice, and you might say like kind of Western academia, there was obviously this sense that you know, as knowledge holders, our knowledge wasn't really being incorporated in things like, you know, trying to model where the soil might go. You've got tons of people who have information that can contribute to making your response plan more accurate, more effective. And we knew that we had that knowledge, but no one's just going to, we, we knew to expect less than to have people say, oh, they think they have some information that could benefit us, we'll, we'll just listen to them. So yeah, part of it, we did feel like we had to ground truth it. It's great that there are more opportunities and initiatives arising that value local knowledge. Let's hear more about the project itself. 
So the first phase of the project was really to work with our harvesters and ask them different scenarios like, okay, if it was this time of day in the springtime and there was an oil spill, what are the predominant weather conditions likely to be and where do you think that oil would go? And so we worked with our harvesters and we got their perspective on what that would look like. The second phase of the project has been actually going out and ground truthing that information. So we've been releasing two styles of drifters and we use satellites to have those drifters ping to our satellites every five minutes so we can kind of look at their track as we release them. And basically we go out to the exclusion zone in St. John Harbor, uh, right outside Camport, and release the drifters as if there was going to be an oil spill that was going to emanate from that point. And then we just really get to watch over the next four to 14 days where those drifters are going to go. And so we've been doing that since last July. So we've We've now captured the summer and fall conditions for one annual cycle, and we're going to be looking at doing uh, the spring and summer again this year. This is very cool, and I likely never would have thought about oil spills in this way. I ask about what the response has been like from fishers to the project. It's been an interesting exercise for us because from what so many of our fishermen have communicated to us during the interview phase of the project, we're now in the experimental stage where we've started to analyze some of that data. And it's so great to compare what people said and what we're actually seeing on the water because they're, they're lining up very beautifully. And so that I think is going to be really fun to communicate back to our members because for them, even it's going to, it's going to be a demonstration that they had useful information to be able to contribute and hopefully be able to contribute towards making a more robust response plan in the event of an oil spill. And with any luck that we'll have, I mean, obviously we hope there's never an oil spill, but we do hope that based on the outcomes of this project that we've been able to inform a better response plan in the event that that ever does happen. But but this is one instance where uh, I think it's been really positive for our group that we've been able to go to them and, and ask them for their input, and they've been more than willing to, to participate. And not just on this, but on other research projects, I would say generally, there's a really strong desire to contribute to the betterment of managing the area, whether it's, uh, you know, marine spatial planning, which kind of, you know, ties into this oil spill project, whether it's research with different lobster biologists, you know, collecting samples or doing at-sea testing. You know, I, I think they, they have an interest in doing that stuff if they can see the benefit that it might have on our industry. And if, and if there stands to be a benefit, then overall they're, they're very willing and interested to contribute. So sometimes we feel frustrated um, about, you know, not being able to move forward objectives that we think are really important. And you know, you can get discouraged a lot um, working in this kind of arena. But yeah, having reflected on everything I've been able to say today, there's certainly, I think the, the benefit exists in that the association is a venue for people to come together, whether it's to air grievances, whether it's to, you know, fight against something that we're unhappy with or advance something positive that, that we're interested in whether that results in like a net positive outcome for, for us as an industry. Um, but whatever it is, you know, whether the outcome is good or bad, the association is there as a vehicle to move those things forward. 
I know sometimes it feels like we're not accomplishing everything we want to, but we're making huge strides. And I think even for myself today, this has been a great opportunity to reflect on that. And, uh, you know, we, we are making progress and yeah, we may not win every battle, but the, the association is, is the mechanism to do that, or at least that's how I see it. Melanie and Lillian aren't the only ones who have recognized the value of fishers as an invested group to work with on management and research projects. Finally, let's chat with Darren Porter, a local knowledge holder who fishes in the Upper Bay of Fundy. Darren often references the academic or Western system that is based on written and peer-reviewed science. He has spent the past decade learning about this system and integrating his local knowledge. Recently, he has participated in national conferences and lectured in BC and Nova Scotia. Here he shares some of his strategies with us for breaking down barriers in order to create more space for collaboration and mutual understanding across knowledge systems. I'll give you an example of how I started that conversation off when I do this lecture. I'm not an academic, but I've been finally accepted after years of kicking the door in, and I'm thankful for that. But first question I asked, if you ever go to a lecture, if there's professors in the room, I don't do it with students, I do it with professors, is I asked who has the most knowledge in the room, most education? Who has spent the most time getting their education in the room? And normally, somebody will say seven, nine, 12, 13 years, whatever it is, right? And I finally find the person. Then I look at them and I say, well, how many days did you spend on a reserve last year or in your life? And usually the highest number is two. And I said, well, don't dismiss traditional knowledge because you haven't spent as much time trying to understand it. And it's a very harsh thing for me to say. And it's not completely accurate either because not all First Nation people live on reserves, but it's a point. I'm getting a point across. Don't dismiss a knowledge system just because you don't understand it. So if you look at a fisherman, indigenous person that fishes or they're from knowledge or the ocean, we're thinking of a million moving parts in our system that we deal with. And the knowledge we've gathered over years, like a roadmap in our heads, and it's very complex. It's like a giant spider map. We have a very hard time bringing that knowledge down to the center of that web, which is where the academics always work. They always work in a single piece of a puzzle. You know, like they're trying to prove one thing about one thing. You know what I mean? Where we're sitting there talking about how this works with this, and when this plant turns on, this species comes up the river, but it interacts with that species, and when that one's done, it goes over here, and our minds are a matrix in comparison to looking for a one finite answer, which is why every time we talk, our answers are so much longer than Twitter, so they dismiss it because it's not what they're looking for because it's too complicated. As researchers or practitioners or decision makers, it's so true that we're often focused on the one piece of the puzzle that our experiences and biases often lead us to. We are usually thinking about what's going on across multiple scales. Not to mention the juggling and balancing of limited time, resources, and capacities. So we have to try to learn how to condense our information down to a way that can be translated to an academic to be useful. So we have to learn the process of the academics, and the academics have to learn the process of us, and then we have to learn the process of the Indigenous people, the Indigenous people have to learn our process, and it becomes like a respect thing over time. You just got to keep putting in time. This is not something that's easy. You have to have the right people at the table to have the will to do it. They're not just doing it because they've got a six-month contract to do it, or they 
whatever. I don't even get paid to do this. I am dedicated to what we started that much that I sacrificed that because somebody's got to do this. Darren and his partners have found a way to navigate a system that isn't their own and share their knowledge systems with others. Over the years, they've noticed many benefits, including better and stronger science. Probably the best thing that we do is uh, so we're the only ones currently working alongside commercial fisheries, Mi'kmaq, and academics in unity. So all of our studies are done with three partners using traditional Mi'kmaq knowledge, um, local fisherman knowledge, and academic knowledge with the goal of creating wisdom. We had to educate ourselves on how the system works that weren't our, wasn't our system. And by that, I mean not the academic system. It's kind of like speaking two completely different languages, even though we both speak English. Someone always has to take a first step. Darren shares what his was. We started getting studies on our own, and then we opened our arms up to them. Instead of trying to get in through them, we invited them in through us. And uh, eventually, we got to the point we are now, where we work in unison, side by side, in collaboration as uh, basically equal partners and shared data. Data is not seen as a seen as a commodity anymore. With our work, it's seen as shared information that can be used to make better decisions and information to go into a consultation room. You know, just simply better science because we have different values to what we're looking for, and the difference creates a conflict until you work together. It is clear that Darren knows firsthand how differences in values and perspectives can often create conflicts until you learn how to work together. In his project, he's focused on two-eyed seeing. This is a critical concept from integrative science that brings together Indigenous and mainstream knowledges and ways of knowing. Two-eyed seeing, or Ed Wapdamuk, was shared by Elder Albert Marshall from the Bear Clan and the Eskisoni community in Mi'kma'ki. The concept was first used in the academic field through a collaboration between Indigenous and academic researchers in Cape Breton. In 2012, they write that to see from one eye with the strengths of Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, and to see from the other eye with the strengths of Western knowledges and ways of knowing, and to use both of the eyes together for the benefit of all. And so our proudest achievement is the fact that we've figured out how to work together. And every study, we get better at working together, so much so that uh, it's produced unforeseen result, which was that we all end up agreeing. So it's interesting. We've not had a case yet where all three knowledge systems have been come to an agreement by the end of the study, which really should solve a lot of problems. Because we can go by ourselves and get those answers, but the big one won't buy into it. Or DFO won't buy into it. DFO goes out, we're not going to buy into it and make it over the big one. We have to do it together. And that's how you get the buy-in. You get a social license, right? That's what's important. And that true social license creates a network of trusted people that expand to other things as well, which solves a lot of our issues, big time. I can definitely see why many would value this approach and happy to hear that Darren has started to see these benefits. He also shares some good news with us. Her department has actually finally recognized what we're doing as a positive because we really do take care of a lot of the stress of work that the province has to go through or the federal government has to go through if they accept the findings and don't want to make a political decision to go against the system that we put together would save the federal government a ton of money because it would be less consultations, it would be less arguments, less protests, less confusion, headaches, emails, you know, because we're all getting along. So once you all get along, if the government agrees with the evidence that's put forward in front of them, 
that's verified by the rights holder, the stakeholder, and the academic institutions, it makes their job easy. I want to emphasize Darren's main point here. If multiple systems are co-constructing knowledge by doing science together, we're more than likely to agree on the results and implications. The only way to solve it is to do it together. It's not where you trust the science, you trust the information. If everybody's on the boat together, everybody's doing it together. The facts are the facts. You can't argue them. You have three separate parties that are three sets of eyes because we use three different knowledge systems. And when you do that, you can't corrupt that science. You can't do it. Science is science. And that's a beautiful thing. That's why there's such a buy-in. You get all the buy-in, you know, and you don't get to fight on the ground. And that's important. To me, that's the biggest game changer. At the end of the day, it is spreading. It is spreading. So gently and gradually, it's starting to spread. We were devoted to changing the system. And I think we've done it. Probably will become a template for the rest of the country. So that would be my, one of my proudest achievements is the fact that we've actually figured out how to work together. And we've done so very well. Now we're at the part of the episode where we reflect on what we've heard today and give our guests a final chance to share their key messages for you. From Melanie, here's what we heard. The thing that worked best for me as a researcher was to have the fishermen identify the problems. Too often, any research subject feels like some expert is coming in from outside and telling them the nature of the problem. And that just doesn't work. For the fishermen, they had more immediate problems and they wanted people to pay attention to what they perceived as the real problems. And if you're willing to do that, if you go in with an open mind that you don't have any of the answers, but you're willing to hear the questions and then collaborate on what a process might be to get the answers, because that's the second thing, I think, is you have to be open to a methodological challenge and work with them on a methodology that is convincing for them. Lillian emphasizes the importance of learning the history of whatever context you're working in and include people who have lived this history. There's no understanding how to manage a fishery or really understand how a fishery works unless you can get some kind of uh, local perspective. My impression is that there used to be a lot more area-based management, and we've gone to a much more regional, even national approach in more recent years in terms of our management structure. And overall, I think that's been to the detriment. I don't think that you can really discount how important it is to base your management plan off of the specifics of an area. I think we used to do that more than we do now, but I definitely think that that's the opportunity that associations like Fundy North have because we get that area-based perspective from our members and our entire job is to try and communicate that like history that exists for all of the different fisheries is really incredible. And you definitely have to immerse yourself not only do you have to kind of learn what the rules are today, but it's so important to learn like how we arrived here and what our management regimes worked like in the past and how we got to the place we are today. Darren also summarizes a few considerations for being successful in integrating and surviving multiple knowledge system collaborations. So the first thing they're going to do is come into it with an open mind and honesty. If they don't, it's not going to work. And that might sound superficial or it might sound foolish, but it's not. There's no way to make this work unless you're willing to listen to each other and take the time. What we're doing with our study is, is keeping people in their proper wheelhouse. You know what I mean? You can cross over and learn how to do the other jobs, 
But until you do learn how to do them, you shouldn't be doing them. I'm not going to go out there and try to write a paper on American Eagles. I am not trained to do that. I wouldn't even attempt to do that. What I will do is I'll sit with a student and I'll explain how I did what I did, why I did what I did, and what I seen through my eyes and, and help them focus their study if they want me to. But I'm not trained to write a paper, so I don't even attempt to. So why should they attempt to fish? If we're going to go fish, we're going to use me to go fish. If we're going to explain why we're fishing, how we're fishing, you can explain it in academic terms once you get it from me. I guess my point is, in a shorter phrase, is that's what academics do best, right? Academics record situations. This should be recorded academic because that is the system that you guys are good at doing. The thing is, then you can send it across to another academic and they can understand it. Despite growing up thinking that it was valuable to be a jack of all trades, Darren's message is clear in my mind. Focus on your own strengths and developing soft skills such as communication, building trust, and respect so that you can leverage the strengths of other folks you're collaborating with. It isn't always easy to broaden your mindset. Be open to different ways of knowing. You're not always the expert. Researchers and organizations that work with and for local communities are imperative to building capacity of our natural resource management systems by bringing knowledge together across both scales and sectors. This is the main focus of volume two of this podcast, and we continue to visit communities throughout Atlantic Canada who are having positive impacts within their coastal and marine systems. Today is the first time we talk with Dr. Melanie Weiber, Lillian Mitchell, and Darren Porter. However, it most certainly is not the last. We'll be hearing from them later on this season. Next time, we welcome a guest to tell us about why fish guts are all the rage right now and how this is building a circular economy through waste recovery in Newfoundland and beyond. From a researcher's perspective, we know it's important to bring together different knowledge systems if we want to make change in our field of expertise. Of course, that is relevant for anyone who wants to make a change from the ground up. So this is a call to action for those listeners out there. If you have a personal reflection on how bringing together multiple systems of knowledge is important for your work, let us know. Share with us your experience. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope you will, drop us a line at stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal communities in particular face some of the greatest environmental challenges. Coastal Connections is on a mission to showcase how coastal communities are adapting to environmental changes and how they can thrive, even in the face of uncertainty. We are funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and Grenfell Campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland. We also receive support from the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, the Miopar Network, the Environmental Policy Institute, and the Harris Centre at Memorial University. Please check out our other Coastal Roots radio programs, such as Volume 1, Social Fishing, that covered the impact of COVID-19 on fishers and fisheries. We also produce research notes and pubcasts that aim to communicate current science in a digestible way. And stay tuned for a new program, by and large, that takes a broader look at coastal issues and will be available this coming summer. See you next time!